the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 262 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Others will not come willingly. They have continued to rebel against Christ and they have run from him so that they have lived in complete disregard for him and his standards of holiness. Someday, the Bible says, someday they will stand before Jesus Christ and they will be forced at that point to acknowledge his lordship. They will, they will bow their knees even if God has to break their knees to make this happen. And they will confess that Jesus is Lord. Just don't want to be a part of that group. Many people have told me about the questions they want to ask Jesus when they see him face to face. As for me, I expect to be in too much awe to be asking any questions for a very long time, if ever. And that's after he tells me to get up. He is that awesome, glorious, and holy. As overwhelming as that meeting will be for those of us who love Jesus, imagine the terror for those who have lived their lives in rebellion and suddenly see Him in all His glory. Hi there. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we find ourselves in the midst of Pastor Steve's final message about a sermon preached by a fisherman over 2,000 years ago. In fact, it was that fisherman's first time preaching, and oh, what a start to his evangelistic career. I'm referring, of course, to the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost. In this message, to a hostile crowd, many of whom had been part of the mob that demanded Jesus' death, Peter brilliantly proved that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. We'll start off today with a look at John's Gospel, but keep your finger in our main text, Acts chapter 2. Here's Pastor Steve with today's lesson. Joel's prophecy said that God would pour out His Spirit, and in telling this crowd that it's Jesus who is pouring out the Spirit, Peter is declaring that Jesus the Messiah is also the Lord God. He's God himself. That's Peter's point. Peter says that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He means that during his earthly ministry, Jesus had told his disciples that the Father, once he ascended, the Father then would send them the Holy Spirit. This was the Father's promise to them. For example, John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, in John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, that's the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me. And though it was the Father who promised, promised them through Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come, it was actually Jesus, the exalted one, at the right hand of the Father, who actually poured forth the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. 
And this is precisely what Jesus told his disciples he would do. After his resurrection, he said this in Luke 24, 49, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He said, I'm sending the promise. The Father promised it, but I'm the one doing it. See, folks, Peter has now come full circle. Now come full circle in his sermon. Having started out by explaining that the miracle of Pentecost as God pouring out his spirit, Peter now says that it is Jesus who is responsible for pouring the spirit out, meaning that Jesus is God. That's his point. And you know how we know this is exactly what he's thinking, that this isn't an interpretation imposed on the text? Notice the very next statement that Peter makes in his sermon about Jesus. Notice verses 34 and 35. He says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Peter first makes a statement. Notice the first thing he does, he makes a statement about King David concerning the fact that David has not ascended to heaven in a resurrected body because David has not been resurrected. Remember, we saw this last week. Peter said to them, David's tomb is with us to this day. His body is decaying. We have his remains. He wasn't resurrected yet. And now he's saying, because he wasn't resurrected, he he didn't ascend to heaven in a resurrected body. Having said this about David, Peter then quotes from the first verse of a very important psalm that David wrote. It's, It's Psalm 100. And ten. Now, I say it's a very important psalm because this psalm is quoted more times in the New Testament, at least this verse, verse 1 of Psalm 110. It's quoted more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament verse. It's either directly quoted or referred to about 30 times in the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, there are several times where the writer to the Hebrews refers to this. Very important verse. And you can understand why it's quoted so often in the New Testament when you see its meaning. Here's what Psalm 110 verse 1 says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The first thing we see is that David the author of this psalm, Psalm 110, he writes that the Lord said something to his Lord. Now, before we see what was said, we need to understand who's doing the talking and who's being talked to. The Hebrew language has several words that, that are translated and can be translated Lord. Now, the first Lord that David mentions, the first word Lord that David uses in Psalm 110 is the Hebrew word Jehovah, or Yahweh. It is the sacred name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, whom shall I say has sent me? He said, I am that I am. That's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. It's the name that exclusively belongs to the God of Israel. It's the great I am. I am the self-existent one. I am. So David says that it is Yahweh who's doing the talking. So who is he talking to? Well, David says he's speaking to my Lord. He's speaking to David's Lord. So who is David's Lord? Well, this is another Hebrew word for Lord, 
But it's not Yahweh. It's Adonai. Adonai. Adonai is a word that means one who is superior. Sometimes this word is used in the Old Testament to speak of God as the sovereign superior one. Sometimes it is used to speak of a human who is superior to the one who's doing the speaking. Now, David is obviously using Adonai to refer to God, not to a mere human. How do we know this? Because in his day, there was no one superior to him. David was the greatest king over the strongest nation in that region of the world. There's no one superior to David. He conquered all. So what David is telling us is that God said something to God. In other words, this is a conversation within the Godhead, within the Trinity. It is God the Father speaking to none other than Jesus Christ, God the Son, and he is telling him, David's Lord, to sit at his right hand, the highest place of honor, power, and authority. No wonder this verse is quoted so often in the New Testament. It's an incredibly clear statement that Jesus Christ is God. In fact, folks, Jesus himself quoted this very verse to assert his deity. He did it in Matthew chapter 22. He also did it in Luke's gospel. But Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? That is, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus said, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. (laughs) You certainly can understand that. Uh, Knowing that the Pharisees understood that the Messiah was a son of David, meaning one of his descendants, that was clear, all Jewish people knew that, Jesus then asked them to explain. He certainly knew the answer, he wanted them to think. Explain how David could refer to him as his Lord. How could David refer to one of his sons, one of his descendants, as his Lord? Now, they didn't know the answer, but you do. You do. The Messiah is both David's son, because he is human, and he's also David's Lord, because he is full deity. In other words, Jesus is the unique God man. And as the God-man, he has been exalted by God the Father to reign supreme at the position of highest authority. And watch this. It is in this position of highest authority that Jesus will subdue all of his enemies. Still quoting Psalm 110, notice what Peter says in verse 35 about Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. He says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, what, is, what does he mean by this? Well, in the ancient world, a victorious king would plant his foot on the neck of a conquered enemy, a rather humiliating thing to go through if you were a conquered enemy. The enemy would be lying face down before the victorious king so that he literally would be a footstool for the king who has his foot on his neck. 
So what David is saying, and Peter is affirming, is that Jesus as the exalted Messiah and Lord is going to someday have all of his enemies in subjection to him. They will all bow down before him as the exalted Lord. This is exactly what the rest of the Bible says. That great passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, this is what it's talking about. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now some people will bow to Christ willingly. That's what every true believer has already done. We have willingly bowed to his supreme sovereignty and authority over our lives. We've said, yes, Lord, we've run our lives far too long. You run our lives as we trust you for salvation. But others, others will not come willingly. They have continued to rebel against Christ and they have run from him so that they have lived in complete disregard for him and his standards of holiness. Someday, the Bible says, someday they will stand before Jesus Christ and they will be forced at that point to acknowledge his lordship. They will, they will bow their knees, even if God has to break their knees to make this happen. And they will confess that Jesus is Lord. You just don't want to be a part of that group. You want to make sure that you've come willingly to him in this lifetime and you've bowed not only your knee but your heart to him because if not, you will be forced to do that as he subdues you as his enemy and not as his friend. Now with this last statement about Jesus' exaltation, Peter has made his case for Jesus, not only being the Messiah, but also he's made his case for him being the Lord, his life. His death, his resurrection, his exaltation, they provide overwhelming evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's true Messiah and Lord. The only thing left for Peter to do at this point is to close his sermon, and he does it with a strong assertion and an equally strong accusation. Verse 36. Therefore, this is his closing statement. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. First thing Peter does in bringing his sermon to a close is he makes this strong assertion of who Jesus is, speaking to thousands. Remember where he is. He's in the city of Jerusalem. He's speaking to thousands of his fellow Jews who are standing before him, Peter wants them to know and all Israel to know that based on all that he has told them about Jesus, they can be certain, absolutely certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, meaning Messiah, the anointed one. Listen closely, though, because by these words, you, you may be a little confused. Well, how did, how did God the Father make him Lord? I thought he was Lord. I thought he was Messiah. Listen closely. Peter isn't saying that prior to his exaltation, Jesus wasn't Lord, wasn't Messiah. No, he's always been the Lord. He's always been the Messiah. Even in his infancy, he was acknowledged as Lord and Messiah. Luke 2.11, we usually think of this at Christmas time. 
the angels announced to the shepherds, they said, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Even in his infancy, they refer to him as Messiah, the Lord, long before his exaltation. So there was never a time that Jesus wasn't Messiah, wasn't Lord. But what Peter is saying, note this, is that after his resurrection, God the Father exalted him to a role where he now, note this, exercises his power as Messiah and Lord. He didn't execute and exercise his power prior to this. I like the way John Stott put it. He said, God exalted him to be in reality and power what he already was by right. That's the point. That's Peter's assertion. And the entire house of Israel can know for certain, based on the biblical evidence that he's given them, that God has appointed and exalted Jesus as the Messiah, as well as Lord, to rule and reign supreme overall, including his enemies, who will someday bow before him in submission to his authority. Therefore, based on this, based on Christ's exaltation as Lord and Messiah, Peter brings a heart-wrenching accusation against those who are listening to him that day. Right now, he tells them, you are Messiah's enemies because you crucified your Messiah. You crucified your Lord. He says at the end of verse 36, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, Peter is telling them the most sobering, solemn words they have ever heard, that they are guilty of committing the worst crime imaginable. In rejecting Jesus and calling for his crucifixion, they have actually murdered their own Messiah, the one that all the prophets spoke of, and the Lord God of Israel, the God-man who now sits as the exalted sovereign one over all the universe, ready to subdue all of his enemies and crush them under the weight of his power and foot. In other words, they thought that they were right in rejecting Jesus. They thought he was a fraud. They thought he was demonic. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was a Sabbath breaker. But they were dead wrong. Absolutely wrong. They have been fighting God all along. And therefore, they stand, Peter says, condemned and guilty of putting to death the very one who came to save them, the one who has loved them. Now think about how devastating Peter's words must have been to these people. All of their lives, they had been taught about the Messiah. And that was their hope, that the Messiah would come and deliver them. And now Peter is telling them that he has come. The one who is talked about in your synagogues and in your homes, the one you've been reading about all of your lives in the scriptures, he's come and you put him to death. He's telling him, O Israel, God became a man and dwelt among you. He came to you. He actually came to you and you rejected him and you killed him. And with that charge ringing in their ears, Peter's sermon, it's over. It's over. He's ended the sermon with a startling accusation against those in the crowd before him. And what is their reaction? Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? 
They're absolutely devastated by what they've heard that they've done. Luke tells us, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that when they heard Peter's words, they were pierced to the heart. What does that mean? It means they were pierced with guilt. They were convicted of their sin. They were smitten in their conscience. They knew they were guilty. And in their grief and in their anguish, they don't know what to do. They can't undo what they've already done. They know that they're guilty of the most scandalous crime imaginable, putting to death their own Messiah and Lord. And what's more, he, the one they crucified, he's alive and he's exalted. And he's in a position to punish them as his enemies. So not knowing what to do, they cry out to Peter and to the other apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Listen, these folks are looking for answers. They don't really know what to do. They want some direction from the apostles. In other words, they know that they're incapable of removing this horrible guilt. And so they're asking for their help in light of the fact that they've put their their Messiah and Lord to death and they're now objects of his wrath. They desperately want to know, what should we do in light of all of this? Now, let me stop for a moment and explain that what these individuals are expressing at this point, that's the heart cry of someone who's ready to be saved. Because what they're expressing is, first of all, conviction of their sin. They know that they are guilty before a holy God, and they want a remedy to their sin. Secondly, they are expressing a willingness to submit to doing whatever God wants them to do. They're desperate individuals looking for answers. Tell us what to do. What does God want us to do at this point? And folks, this is exactly the attitude of someone who's ready to be saved. It's important that you know this because we don't want to, in evangelizing, pick fruit that's not ripe. As they see their sin, their heart cry to God is, Oh God, what have I done? I've sinned against you, and I don't want to continue in such rebellion. See, the only people who will ever be saved are those who not only know they have sinned, but who are deeply remorseful over their sin, and they want to stop sinning against God. And in their grief-stricken hearts, they know that they have rebelled against God by living independent of him, so that they have done whatever their sinful hearts dictated that they do, and now they want it to stop. And so they are willing to surrender and submit to Christ's lordship over them. Listen, without this conviction of sin, no one will ever be saved. There must always be conviction of sin brought about by the Holy Spirit through the word of God before there can be salvation from sin. We don't come to Jesus to make our lives easier in this world. We don't come to Jesus because we've messed up. We come to him because we're sinful. We know it, and we want the forgiveness of our sins. There can be no salvation from sin without a conviction of sin. You see this clearly in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 12 and 13, where we read about Israel's future conversion and restoration at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, just before Messiah returns. In Zechariah 12, 10, we read, I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they'll mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only son, and they'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The nation will realize what Peter has told these thousands of Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. We pierced him. We rejected him, and they will mourn guilty before God. This is conviction of sin. Countless people suddenly drop dead every day due to heart attacks, aneurysms, and strokes, having been oblivious to their urgent need for medical attention. Applying that thought to the spiritual world, why would I want to be saved if I didn't have any symptoms, if I didn't think I'd done anything that would cause a need for salvation? If I don't understand that I've wronged God and that He won't tolerate sin, I have no motive for seeking His forgiveness. Conviction is what gives us that motivation. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at their website, lakesidechapel.com. If listening to Verse by Verse has blessed you and you'd like to help support this ministry, there are a couple of ways you can do that. One is to give by phone. Just call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. Another way to give is online through the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. Besides the giving page, we have a message archive page where we keep all of our previous broadcasts available for you to stream or to download at no charge. The web address again is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. On our next Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.